so it's a very heterogeneous region. And that's why I think, you know, certain bilateral relationships will uh, have different prospects than others. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Kezia McKeague, a director at McClarty Associates, the International Business Advisory. We talked about the U.S. relationships with Latin American countries and the changes we should expect with it with the new Biden administration. Her specific areas of expertise are on Argentina and Cuba, as well as broader Latin American issues. Her career has in- included work at the Council of Americas and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Cuba Study Group, and the Meridian International Center's Rising Leaders Council. Kesey and I are both Wake Forest University graduates, and we serve together on Wake Forest Alumni's Global Deeks Network. She's a good friend, and it was great to have her on the show. After this conversation, I'm more optimistic about the future of U.S. relations with our hemispheric neighbors. And now let's get into the show. Kesey McKeague, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Great to be with you, and great to have a fellow Deacon alum on the podcast. (laughs) That's right. So let's go right into it. For the last four years under the Trump administration, we've seen what could be termed, I think, very well as a hostile approach to Latin American countries. Early now in the Biden administration, there hasn't been too much outreach to Latin America, but lots of people are expecting a different tone. What should we expect from the Biden administration as as it engages with Latin America? Great question. Biden during the campaign had criticized Trump for for what he termed taking a wrecking ball to hemispheric relations. And he certainly pledged, as he has in the rest of the world, a sort of re-embrace of multilateralism and a change in tone, a a rhetorical focus on cooperation over confrontation. Mm -hmm. In my conversations with his Latin American advisors, many of whom have now joined the administration, They've repeatedly called for substituting Trump's rather transactional approach with a lot of countries in the region with a more values-based foreign policy. And the broad themes of that value-based foreign policy, according to their public comments and, and conversations that I've had, would likely be, as you know, climate change, which is a huge priority for this administration, human rights, and anti-corruption efforts. Of course, a lot of his advisors also acknowledge that several trends impede a full restoration of Obama-era relations. Of course, there's the growing competition with China, something I'm sure we'll talk about, the rise of populism in Latin America and around the world, as well as, I think, the growing sway of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And of course, it's a very crowded agenda. The U.S., would understandably remain inwardly focused given the enormity of the public health and economic challenges. Nevertheless, I I still think, though, that the links between domestic and foreign policy, coupled with Biden's deep experience and working knowledge and relationships across Latin America, could promote the region on the priority list. He was, as vice president, an informal emissary for the Obama administration to the region. He traveled there 16 times. He was the public face of a U.S. aid package to address poverty and violence as the root causes of migration from Central America, which is an issue that will certainly remain a priority for his administration, already has been a component of the immigration bill now being introduced in Congress. I think some other expected shifts that we can expect will be a pivot away from President Trump's almost exclusive focus on Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. However, Mm -hmm. without a huge 
rapprochement with those authoritarian regimes. Uh, it certainly a significant change in the bilateral relationship with Brazil, given pressure regarding Brazil's environmental management, and then a repudiation of Trump's immigration policies as well. So those those are some of the regional themes. I, yeah. a, a sense a hint of optimism there in, in what well, you're saying. You spent a lot of time mm-hmm actually in in Buenos Aires and and around Latin America over the last several years. Too often we in Washington just think about how things play in Washington, but do you think priorities are aligned, the the government and the people of Latin America, or is this something different? Yeah, that's a very good point. And then what I wanted to add is that you know, the Biden administration certainly has an opportunity to be a partner to the region in its hour of need, but it really is an hour of need in the region. The COVID-19 pandemic struck Latin America particularly hard, economic contraction of, of more than 7% just in 2020, uh, uneven recovery expected in 2021, all of that rising poverty, increasing the potential for political unrest, Latin America is essentially completing what is widely viewed as, a, as another lost decade, the first lost decade in the 1980s. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, those priorities are, I guess those needs are massive across the region. COVID-19 pandemic has provided an opportunity, of course, to assist in very urgent needs like vaccine rollout, bolstering public health systems. But China is also taking advantage of that opportunity. And there's no clear widely respected Latin American interlocutor to, to really foster a multilateral approach. That, that is a challenge as well. Uh, there will be tensions with the two largest economies in the region, governed by populists on different sides of the political spectrum, Mexico yes. and Brazil. Colombia's president is, is sort of embattled domestically up for re-election next year, as is President Bolsonaro in Brazil. Argentina, which, as you mentioned, is the country, one of the countries that I know the best in the region and was spending a lot of time in pre-pandemic, is probably the government that most welcomed a Biden win for a variety of reasons, ideological and pragmatic. Uh, It had a rocky relationship with the Trump administration, so it was hoping for a bit of a reset in the Biden administration, and it's certainly a willing partner on priorities like climate change and a more multilateral approach to Venezuela. But I don't think there will be a significant impact on the substance. Washington is still likely to support Argentina at the International Monetary Fund and its debt restructuring. And that's the most important incentive for Buenos Aires to maintain a good relationship with Washington. But Fernandez has has a lot of his own challenges domestically, one of the most severe economic contractions in the region. Peru and Ecuador have elections in early 2021. In fact, it's a big election year across the region. Chile as well. Chile also very inwardly focused. So a lot of challenges and and (laughs) some daunting tasks. So I don't want to be overly optimistic either, but certainly some opportunities to support the region on these many challenges. We'll also have to see, for example, the focus on anti-corruption, for example, in Central America. That might not go down as well. That sort of increased conditionality for foreign assistance could lead to more friction with increasingly authoritarian governments, as we've seen, for example, with the Bukele administration in South Salvador, which is concerned about its image in Washington at the moment. So it's a, you know, it's a very heterogeneous region. And that's why I think you know, certain bilateral relationships will uh, have different prospects than others. Yeah, of course, we, we always make a mistake if we think the entire hemisphere is just one relationship. 
That's right. But I was struck by what you said about their hour of need and how this, mm-hmm. this really has been a difficult decade and a truly terrible past year in 2020. And so they're looking around for it. And, you know, the United States should not forget, of course, that this is a global competition. And exactly. the United States is not the only player anymore in the hemisphere. China, you mentioned, of course, is a, a growing competitor. And, and, you know, some of the numbers we've seen of their investment into many of these countries, you know, looking both mm-hmm. for resources and infrastructure trade and all this sort of stuff. And they're poised to come in with their vaccine aid. There is a, a kind of a growing challenge to American interests, American hegemony, for for lack of a better term, in the region from China. Absolutely. I mean, that was sort of an obsession for the Trump administration and very much viewed Latin America through the lens of competition with China. And I hope that the United States in this administration will adopt a more sophisticated approach. I don't think U.S. officials lecturing and threatening regional leaders about the consequences of engaging with China is an effective approach and that we shouldn't push regional players to choose between the U.S. and China. For one thing, we don't know who they might choose. The trading relationships have emerged that have emerged over the last decade are extremely important for the region. The financing that China has provided as the preferred lender across the region, uh, it is the largest trading partner now for the majority of countries in Latin America. So forcing them to choose, I don't think, is a realistic approach, but there are better ways, I think, for attempting to counter Chinese influence in the region. And perhaps that's focusing on providing suitable alternatives to Chinese uh, financing. You know, the Trump administration launched this initiative called the America, America Crece Initiative as an attempt to balance Chinese presence in the region, helping Latin American countries access private investment for mm. largely for energy and, and infrastructure projects. I don't know what the Biden administration will do with that exactly. We'll see. But certainly the capitalization, for example, of the, de- the development finance corporation, while it, the scale goes in comparison to, to Chinese lending, it is, is a step in the right direction, perhaps, in providing some carrots for U.S. diplomacy. Yeah, that's um, an important point. That, yeah. That, you know, even if you, ca- you, you both the Biden administration and, and the Trump administration cared about Chinese influence in the region, the way to counter that isn't necessarily an aggressive anti-China mm-hmm. push. It's to present the better alternative and to present the United States as a, as a lender, as a investor, as all of the good things that we can do as, a, as opposed to some sort of rear guard action where you try and tell them, no, no, don't do this, and then don't present an alternative. Exactly right. That, certainly, that's probably one element of continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations, and it's a bipartisan issue in the United States. But I think the approach will be different in this administration when it comes to countering Chinese influence, or certainly uh, a little more subtle in, in the rhetoric, even if the priority remains the same. In, Argentina is a good example, since I know it so well. Uh The previous government in Argentina was probably the most pro-American government in many decades in Argentina. There was a real pivot towards Washington. But at the same time, Argentina needed China. And the Macri administration managed to maintain very good relationships with both Washington and Beijing. 
I remember being in Buenos Aires over the 2018 G20 summit, which by the way, was the only time Trump visited Latin America during his four years as president. But in conjunction with that summit, Argentina and China signed more than 30 agricultural and investment deals. And and so there was, that was a very robust relationship. Argentina received billions of dollars in financing and China is, is the world's top importer of Argentine soybeans and beef. So that's, that's not going anywhere. Um, and now, of course, this government is with Christina Fernandez de Kirchner and her famous appetite for Chinese lending as vice president is, is even a little more pro-Chinese, even if it needs, certainly needs Washington, a good relationship with Washington, as we talked about at the IMF. So I think that's the reality. And the era of the U.S. being the dominant influence in Latin America has been over for quite a long time. There are going to be other players, but but certainly there are a lot of countries in the region that have a huge appetite for, for U.S. investment. And we have a, a much longer history of U.S. investment and trade in the region yeah. uh, than China does. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about an area that that will be a, a big difference, we think, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And that's mm-hmm. been signaled already. And, and that's the relationship with Cuba, you know, that the third border with the United States, right, only 90 miles from our shore. And in a lot of ways, you know, Cuba has had an outsized role in American politics for 60 years here or longer because, uh, you know, it played such a huge role during the Cold War. And, and then even over the last decade, we saw the Obama administration's opening and, and rapprochement in the, mm-hmm. the term, and then the Trump administration shutting that door and closing it down. Of course, ASP has written and done, done work over the past four or five years arguing for the importance of diplomacy in building national security. And Cuba is an example of how engagement, diplomacy, trade, and, and relations are a good way to, to get national security ends. You know, we, we got a better relationship, and we thought that it built American security. Of course, the Trump administration eventually pulled back on, on almost all of it, and the relationship is essentially zero now. So we'll see. A, we should expect a change, I think. But I wanted to, to kind of ask you and get your take on, on what we should expect now in the U.S.-Cuba relationship going forward? And are they at the point, as you say, that the hour of need in, in Havana as well? I, I suspect so, mm-hmm. some of the news reports. Yes, absolutely. Very happy to talk about this because, as you know, it's an issue near and dear to my heart. My mother is Cuban, and despite my very Anglo last name, uh, with a father from New Zealand, I'm a strange mix, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Cuba, over the years, I was actually the first member of my family to return since most of them left in the first wave of exiles in the 1960s. Wow. And I've been traveling to Cuba since 2001. And so I have seen quite a bit of evolution on the island as well. And of course, yeah. vicissitudes of US policy towards Cuba since I've been, even just in the years I've been traveling there and, and studying it very closely. Mm-hmm. On, on Cuba, I, Biden did commit during the campaign to a quick reversal of the harshest elements of the Trump policy, namely the remittance caps he placed for families and restrictions on travel to the island. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not as optimistic as I'd like to be about a high profile push towards more ambitious normalization, at least in the short term. 
And the, the electoral results in Miami-Dade County last yeah. year showed a shift in, in public opinion, unfortunately for my bias, and I'm a testament <laughs> to the generational shifts in the Cuban-American community. The politics in Florida sort of followed the policy lead. I mean, they had... Yeah. Or the opinion polls that very much had shown fervent support for the engagement policy uh, undertaken by the Obama administration, but then um, very much shifted after uh, Trump returned to a policy of, of resource denial that has been the dominant approach, of course, in, in 60 years of U.S.-Cuban relations. So that, and, and also some degree of disappointment among Obama alumni with the Cuban government's slow response to U.S. engagement, which we do have to acknowledge. I'm a proud member of the Cuba Study Group, which is a group of, of, of moderate uh, Cuban-American business leaders and young professionals, nonpartisan policy and advocacy organization that believes in, in seeking change in Cuba, but also that promotes a, a U.S. policy of engagement. It's, we think, the most practical and, and sort of and morally superior um, policy approach given that the, the many decades of the alternative mm-hmm. um, haven't achieved the stated aims. And, right. and I, my, my personal belief is that the embargo policy has been actually counterproductive to the changes that we'd love to see in Cuba. Yeah. So we've actually just published this week a, a paper. It's quite long, but it's worth a read. You can read it on the, download it on the Cuba Study Group website That's, that seeks to be a sort of very solid intellectual foundation for a renewed case for engagement with Cuba as the best way for the U.S. to advance its own national interests and also reduce resistance to reform within the Cuban government. The paper is titled U.S.-Cuba Relations in the Biden Era, a case for making engagement resilient as a means of providing long-term support for the Cuban people. This idea of resiliency is a theme that's explored throughout the paper too. It's certainly true that Obama administration approach, in part because of the slow response by the Cubans and reliance on necessary reliance on executive measures rather than legislative changes, didn't create the sort of constituencies that were needed to overcome the political, shifting political winds that have often dominated U.S.-Cuba relations and why we've seen this sort of crazy pendulum in recent years. Yeah. So the idea of sort of, of, Making normalization uh, resilient, which is the word we've used, um, is an important theme of the paper too. And, and, and to learn from both the successes and, of course, the missed opportunities of the last period of detente when, when Joe Biden was vice president and, and trying to insulate progress from those unpredictable political cycles by both governments negotiating cooperation agreements and facilitating real private sector economic arrangements to try to cement those diplomatic relations. We'll, we'll see. I mean, certainly for Cuba, this means taking advantage of the next four years to really advance some meaningful economic liberalization and, and guarantee greater rights for Cubans, both home and abroad. And I, we think that the circumstances are quite conducive for that. There have been some recent steps made, not enough, but some, some recent steps along those lines. We'll, we'll see. It's certainly a daunting task, and it's hard to be very optimistic. But uh, for somebody from, from yeah. too much experience, yeah. I'd say, you know, I know. I yeah, know. you know, everybody was optimistic. And, and I remember well, AS, we hosted the, the news conference that Alan Gross did when, when he first oh, got yeah. out of prison mm-hmm. and was brought back because 
one of our board members, Scott Gilbert, was his lawyer. And so that was kind of our <laughs> baptism by fire into U.S. Cuba politics and everything. And of course, we, we got more and more engaged in it and, and actually took a delegation down in early 2017 argue, and then came back and, and argued uh, on, hill, on the Hill and, and with the, the White House that engagement is a good way forward. You know, I, right. I, both sides, uh, I think you would agree with it, is mm-hmm. we want more form from the Cuban government. We want more human rights. We want more democracy. It's just that we disagree about the way to do that. You know, they yeah. failed six decades of resource denial, as you as you point mm-hmm. out, only made the, the Castro regime, the communist government stronger. You know, why, why we expect that mm-hmm. such a forceful thing would would take down the government, I think is so, so false. But I don't know, they, you're right, the politics got very strange. Mm-hmm. in Miami-Dade uh, over the last you know several years, the, the polling looked good on it in 16. And then who knows, it, it was very interesting to see how that flipped. And it was, it was. And, and, and part of this paper makes the point, though, that you can't just ignore the Cuban American community. In fact, one of the recommendations is to foster a, a sort of increased dialogue with the Cuban American community. The road to resilient relations goes not around Miami, but through it. Yeah. Um, so that remains very important. It, I agree with you. It was very interesting and also disappointing to see those shifts in recent years. But I think the fundamentals are still there, especially for the more recent arrivals, the need to be able to go back and visit family to, yeah. to, to send remittances. Uh, and that's why that's, that's all part of the low-hanging fruit for the Biden administration that we'll, I think we'll see a, a fairly quick reset in that regard. Yeah, we exactly consular right. services, all of that. But then we hope that we'll go a little bit, a, a step further too. The paper, it's worth looking at, sort of proposes this multi-pronged approach, three tracks to get bilateral relationships back on a more constructive track and, and hopefully incentivize further reform in Cuba. It, it also makes the point, though, that engagement is not a silver bullet. It's not a guarantee. It's not even an end in itself. But I it still think it's, it's sort of the best way to serve U.S. national interests and, yeah. and I think, advance economic liberalization, hopefully political liberalization in Cuba over time. Um, but conditionality has never really worked. I mean, the, the Cuban... You know this, this sort of Cuban sense of sovereignty. Never, we can't. We need to do some of these things unilaterally because waiting for the Cubans to yeah. open up, it, I think, is is just not the way to go, and it's, it has never proven effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and of course, we we also have to be aware again, like I said before, that we're not the only players here. If, if you go down to Havana, you you see a lot of. Chinese-led uh, investment uh, going in and building hotels, building uh, free the free trade zone down down the way. And that's, that's right. And then there still remains, and and it's probably growing the Russian engagement with with Cuba. Uh, we've we've seen them reopening relations, uh, military military relations, and that sort of stuff. And so. It's clear when when I was down there in, in 17 and our, our talks with the government, mm-hmm. they wanted to engage more with the U.S. They, they would rather have have a relationship with us than go that route. But they're going to go where their needs are and their needs are 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 great. You know, they part of the reason that they have to they feel like they need to reform 
is about their economic collapse and inability to to even get the the fuel and and energy they need to run their economy. That's right. The needs are immense. And I do think the end of U.S. policy of engagement towards Cuba left a void for other countries to fill, as you noted. Of course, Venezuela has been the country that Cuba is most dependent on in recent years. Before that, of course, the Soviet Union. Now its new benefactor is is China more than anybody else. You see that even on the streets of Havana with the Chinese cars. Now a regular part of Havana traffic joining the 1950s and American Chevrolets and the Soviet Ladas. Um, But China is a large source of investment. Of course, reliable statistics are hard to come by, but we know... China is a huge source of investment and, and a large trading partner. Yeah, that's, I think, in a, you know, one of the other arguments made in this paper that it's worrisome for U.S. interests that the, uh, you know, these efforts by global rivals to, to seize the ground that the U.S. has left behind. And yeah, I firmly believe that the U.S. embassy, and of course, we still have diplomatic relations, fortunately, but the yeah. em- embassy is severely understaffed now. Yeah. Having that presence on the island is, is, is very, very important. You mentioned the huge needs for Cuba, too. And, and some supporters of the Trump policy, I think, can rely on dubious evidence that Cuba has made recent steps to advance long-awaited <laughs> currency reform and expand opportunities in the private sector. But I think that has much more to do with the COVID-19 impact and the loss of Venezuelan support than than U.S. policy, to be honest. And and we we did see some important results from the engagement policy of the Obama years, from unprecedented private sector growth to access to information and technology on the island really exploding, all of that. So we'll see. It's, It's a politically challenging issue for the Biden administration. It's not going to be top of the priority list, but... Anyway, we're doing our part to make sure that this window of opportunity that it's opened is seized upon because I worry about entrenching yeah, sort of, you know, uh, if, the, the alternative. <laughs> if it just gets stuck into, into this, this sort yeah. of you know, it, trench warfare back and forth, you know, it, I mean, the, for me, the, the best sort of way to change a, a government or anything like that is not pressure, it's exposing them to Americans and exposing them to American ideas and, and American investment and all that sort of stuff. And, and with such a, a close relationship and such a clear demand for American travel to, to the country, you know, even in tourism, but all of the, uh, the expatriates and, and the, the family relationships across the, the Straits of Florida there, you know, it seems yeah obvious way for engagement and to to build that relationship. Yeah, I agree. The people to people exchanges, I think are are really important. Yeah, really important. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, why why does this have to be just about the Biden administration towards the communist government? Perhaps we we should just think more about the American people people and figure out a way to do that. So yeah, that's what I hope. Yeah, well, we haven't even gotten into uh, into Venezuela too much, but we can save that for for another conversation. That's that's a whole different can of worms, and and it uh, is <laughs> another intractable and and difficult problem that that it's all related. 
But we like right. to finish our conversations here with, with kind of a look to the future. And what are the headlines uh, in five or six years down the line? What do you think the headlines about U.S. relations, Latin America should look like? What should we, we be working towards in, say, 2026 or 27 or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. It it sort of reminds me of a famous Argentine joke that is more about the Argentine economy, but I think also applies to U.S. Latin American relations, which is you leave the country for 10 days, everything has changed. If you leave the country for 10 years, nothing has changed. Uh (laughs) Um, And there are certain... uh, abiding themes in, in U.S. Latin American relations that are not going away. Yeah. Um, so no matter who is in the White House, no matter um, who is in power in the major Latin American economies, um, the, the issues like that have always been on the agenda for the United States in the region, mm-hmm. like trade, democracy, drugs, all of that's going to still be there. But I would say that that's perhaps an inadequate agenda given where the region is today. Um, we also need to be looking at themes like energy security, I know, which is a priority for yeah. us. The rising poverty and inequality I alluded to, um, challenge of public security and migration. So I hope, you know, even though we may not know <laughs> exactly what will be the crisis of the day or who is going to be in office in five or six years, I think those sort of predominant themes will still be very much a part of the headlines. Uh, I also mentioned change, the more they stay. That's, that's basically (laughs) the idea. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I also, I did mean to mention too, in our earlier conversation on us, Latin American relations, that the United States is committed to hosting the summit of the Americas. And it was supposed to be this year, but given the pandemic, it's likely to shift to early next year in order to do an in-person summit. But that's that's a way to a little bit kind of force Latin America as a priority on this administration. For yeah, this we'll administration. Have, have a bunch of heads of state come into town and everything. That 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 would be yeah. an interesting forcing mechanism. So sure. exactly action forcing event. So something for all of you to, to keep an eye out on and we'll have to see what themes the Biden administration ultimately selects as well. Talked about some of the priorities for the administration, but some of those could, like climate change, could lead to major countries not wanting to participate. So yeah. the challenge will be will be not only selecting the time and location within the United States, but also reaching a consensus on those priority issues. But I think that will be an interesting event to follow. Well, I think that that just gives mm-hmm. us reason to uh, to do this again. And, and that's talk right. So <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. Well, Kezia, thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll put a link to the Cuba Study Group uh, paper on on the website here. And uh, so oh, that'd be great. Thank you for read, that. Read it there. And thanks for being. Yeah. With- thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew. My pleasure.